Welcome to the Missionary Disciple Podcast by Catholic Christian Outreach. As we're between seasons this summer, we'll be sharing recordings from our Rise Up Conference in Toronto last December. This includes both keynote and workshop talks featuring a variety of fantastic speakers. We hope you enjoy them. for spending your morning with me. Gosh, I hope uh, by the end of this hour, hour and 15 minutes, that there will be something. When you guys give talks yourself, when, when it's your turn to be here instead of there, you'll realize there's so much imperfection in what you're trying to say and how it comes across and what you know and don't know about what people need. But uh, so always the best thing to do is to entrust the fruitfulness of whatever you have planned to our Blessed Mother that she will touch it and make it fruitful uh, in exactly the way she knows you need now or or soon, maybe, she knows you need. So let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady Queen of Peace, pray for us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay. So, you, virtuous sexuality. You would, I imagine if I just asked you to kind of have a word or an image or an idea of the state of sexuality in our time, probably in one way or another, whatever it would be for each of you, it would be a grim picture. You'd have some sense that things are in disarray, that things are not working. So I don't know, just to start here, it might, it might surprise you to know that about a year ago, there was an article in a really kind of mainstream uh, monthly magazine that went viral, that got all kinds of comment, that basically said, young people today are having less sexual activity than any generation in the past. That the teen pregnancy rate is way down, that people are not having sex at levels that even my generation and the generation after me are having. You might think, oh oh, something's good happening here. Teen pregnancy rate is down, sexual activity rate is down. Maybe, maybe we're turning a corner. Of course, that's not exactly why the article ended up uh, getting so much attention. Because as you, as you read through it, as you started to dig into it, you realized, and this is what the author was trying to understand, that the reason why young people today are having way less sexual activity is not for the reasons you may think. It's not for the reasons that all of a sudden, some message, some idea about virtuous sexuality is getting through. So she went on to talk about what those reasons were. And the first one you already know, you already know it, pornography. The absolutely pervasive, instant availability of pornography. Okay, so one, that would be enough. It would be enough to explain the distortions of relationships and you could imagine, right, how that just messes up our ability to relate to people. Okay. But that wasn't it. It kind of just kept getting a bit spiraling out of control. Another one was the intense pressure and anxiety young people feel about their job futures. So what are they doing? They are being, from the moment, perhaps, I don't, like, I'm very, I'm very much of a different generation. You guys, like, I grew up in a different time before, before smartphones, before the internet. My first computer, you had to literally put a disc into it uh, in order to turn it on. Um, yeah, it's crazy. But 
I, I can appreciate that from the first moment now, you're in high school, you're in university, everything's, okay, you gotta get a job, right? Everything's about what's this gonna do? How are you gonna get a job? So another reason why people are having less sexual activity is because of the stress and anxiety that's causing them to wanna prioritize their, their education. Everything's about their job. And then finally, the last one is another one you would have guessed if I'd given you just a few moments to think about it, and it's social media. And this was the main focus of her article on the findings of, a, of an author who I have come to love, Jean Twen Twenge, a, a sociologist in California, who has shown over and over strong and direct connections in her research between social media use and poor mental health. More social media is used, the lower the level of mental health. The more social media is used, the less the person is adept at in-person social relationships, at actually spending time with others and knowing how to do that, at feeling secure in the world and going out into relationships. So in other words, the amount of sexual activity is going down, but the reasons are because our overall emotional health is plummeting. Our overall relational health is plumbing. So what starts off as a, gosh, pornography, we got to do something about this, absolutely, is starting to turn into something much worse, which is an overall breakdown in our ability to relate to others, to have relationships, to achieve that kind of security and confidence and freedom and peace that allows us to go out into this world with no expectations of what the world owes us, but just to be at peace in it. It's a grim picture. It's a grim picture of the state of sexuality today, and it's our picture. We're living this. We're breathing this air of, this, of what's going on. So you could say, how do we go from that picture to a love that lasts, virtuous sexuality? How do we go from this seemingly spiraling breakdown in our ability to have relationships with each other, let alone sexual activity, to a virtuous sexuality, a love that lasts. And here's where I come to that thing I said right at the beginning. So of course, that's my question. It's like when, when CCO sends the invitation to give the workshop and you, you have to think to yourself, okay, well, what do I do? Like, what do you do? Do you, do you give a talk on pornography? Do you give a talk on social media? Do you give them an introduction to Theology of the Body, not knowing whether three quarters of those who may come have like read Theology of the Body for beginners seven times? Like, thanks, Father, we know that. Um, you don't know what to do, right? You can only hope that whatever is needed will be given and then follow an idea that you have. And I know that there are great resources out there for learning theology of the body. And for those of you who literally is like, what is he talking about? That's uh, St. John Paul II, Pope St. John Paul II's beautiful extended reflection on the meaning of human love and sexuality in God's plan. What, what did he intend? Never, ever in the history of the church has it been written with such beauty, clarity, and depth. Um, and that is most accessible in this book, Theology of the Body for Beginners, written by Christopher West. Very thin book, because the original talks of John Paul are much thicker. But you think of it as a stepping stone. Um, I've also tried to provide you with one of your handouts that you have is also my attempt to take this book and make it that short. <laughs> that short. <laughs> um, so the handout that says The Catholic Vision of Human Love and Sexuality uh, is my attempt to do that same background uh, so I make a decision, okay, we're not going to do an introduction to theology of the body, but I'll give them that handout. I'll show them the book. Okay. 
Uh, the other handout you have, just now that you're kind of paying attention to them, the Catholic vision of morality is another kind of background document, but I am going to say a little more about that. But what I want to give you in that document is something that I don't know if anyone has ever given to you because what well, we only have our own experiences, right? And I only know my experience kind of going through Catholic schools uh, and kind of learning my faith in a bit of an awkward, haphazard way. No one ever told me the meaning of morality in a Catholic vision. No one ever told me what it meant. Not just that there are rules I need to follow, but what it meant. Why do my choices matter? Why does God make me choose things? So now that I've had the chance to spend five years delving into God's plan for morality, and what our choices mean, man, it has changed the way that I approach so many things in my life and the kind of uh, ministry and pastoral care that I give. That document, The Catholic Vision of Morality, is just my attempt to capture an essence of the Catholic, what it means, morality, and how everything fits in. Law, conscience, virtue, grace, all that stuff you associate with morality. That's my attempt to write it. So you've got that as a resource. And I hope for those of you who are missionaries, but even for your own, um, your own spiritual life, that that can be helpful. And then the final, the third handout uh, are some questions that I, I hope, this is the part where I'm like, okay, blessed mother, <laughs> that I hope they'll make some sense by the end of this talk as, as reflections. All right, so what do I want to do? What did I decide? I kind of took my cue from the title of the workshop, virtue, because the title was given to me, right? The title was given, the description was given, and just the invitation made. Could you talk about this? Virtuous sexuality. And I locked on to that word virtue because after spending five years being able to dive into the church's understanding of morality, I realized that that is a word that is so superficially understood and yet is so insanely important, right? And so important is it for when sexuality breaks down like a mechanic, right? Like you don't need to understand how your car works until it breaks down. And when it breaks down, you're very happy that there's someone who understands it on a technical level. Same thing with sexuality. When it breaks down, you are very happy that there are people out there who understand how the human person is put together by God, how they break apart by original sin, and how we can start to put the pieces back together so that they can actually recognize the vision of sexuality as something beautiful. But if you have no idea how the human person is put together and how the parts come apart in original sin, we're all disordered, we're all disintegrated, and how we have to begin to put someone back together, we have to realign them so that they can actually see the vision of sexuality. Because I'm sure you've all had the experience, I certainly have. You can make a, it's like, you could tell someone, literally, you could have the most perfect explanation of theology of the body. You could explain the church's teaching on contraception, on cohabitation, on premarital sex. And then they look at you like you're an alien with five heads. It's like, what are you talking about? Like, is this some kind of relic of a... How could it be that the truth could be right in front of some... We say we're made for the truth by God. You give the truth to someone and they literally can't even recognize it. What's happening there? That's when you need your mechanics of the moral life. And virtue is like the tool that if you can understand it a little more deeply than this very superficial way that we tend to understand it, I think it's one of the most powerful tools. 
because it can change literally the daily decisions about your routines, your practices, your conversations, what TV shows you watch, how you talk to the person at the shopper's drug mart when you're buying your toothpaste. Like if you understand what is happening when we're trying to grow in virtue, everything becomes a source of sexual formation, everything, because it's all shaping you. All right. So that's what I wanted to kind of lock in on. But of course, I don't think that's where people start with virtue, right? I think sometimes people approach virtue like this. Well, the person who follows all the rules is a virtuous person. The person who obeys God is virtuous. In other words, virtue is kind of the thing that just comes at the end. And therefore, it's totally unhelpful, right? Because your job is just to learn how to follow the rules. And then I'll call you virtuous. So, like, whatever. Like, great meaning it's helpful and it's not helpful. And if you're virtuous, of course, God will reward you by giving you the golden ticket into heaven. Heaven, admit one, your ticket into heaven is what he will give you. Um, and as I say, if that's all it is, it's not very helpful to us. So to begin to understand virtue as a tool of rebuilding virtuous sexuality, we do have to spend a, just a little moment to step back and just get very briefly the big picture of the Catholic vision of morality, the meaning of morality in the Catholic faith. Now, that big picture would be a workshop. That big picture is in your handout. I am so conscious that it's not possible to delve into it, and that's why I wanted to give you the background, but I feel like I need to say something essential, though. Otherwise, we'll never really understand what virtue is. So what is the essential. What is the essential meaning of morality in a Catholic vision? Well, you could start again with what people might think. If I took this microphone on the street and just asked people, hey, what is the meaning of morality in the Catholic church? They would probably say something like, well, you know, it's about following rules and God gives you the rules and you show that you obey him by the laws. And then whoever kind of checks off all the rules gets their ticket into heaven, right? They might not say it in those words, but that's kind of what people think morality is. God gives you his law and you follow it. And then you're a good person because you followed his law. What we lose, what we are not seeing in that, as if God is so superficial, right? Like he just gives us a law. What we're missing in that is every choice that we make is a little participation in our creation, let me explain what that means. Every choice you make is a little participation in your creation. Every choice, including the choices you will make today in this hotel, every choice is shaping you like a little sculptor who chips a little bit of the statue. Every choice. You guys know that we are made in the image and likeness of God. One thing I feel, though, that we have not done a great job of communicating as those responsible for teaching the faith is that the image of God, which all of you know, because every kindergarten Catholic student knows this, we're made in the image and likeness of God, is that the image of God is not only something that's already in you. It's not only something that's in you. It's something that you also must become. In other words, at the heart of the Catholic vision of morality, I don't want to say this so clearly. At the heart of the meaning of morality in a Catholic vision is that your creation, your creation is not finished. What does Catholic morality mean? It means your creation is not finished. It means that the image of, that God is not only, God not only has created you in his image and likeness, he is still 
creating you into his image and likeness, and he asks you to share in that creation now. He asks you to participate with him in shaping the image of God within you. And how do you do that? Through your choices, your free choices. That's the call to holiness, that through our choices, we will shape little by little the image of God within us. And the more we shape the image of God in us, the more you resonate with the image. And to resonate with the image of God is the very definition of joy. And when that joy is complete, we call it heaven. Do you see? Like heaven is anything but a reward for being good in your life. Heaven is the natural consequence of a total resonance with God because through your free choices, you've resonated with the image of God in union with the perfect image of God, Jesus Christ, to the point where that resonance is complete and full and you're sharing in the very life of God. Yeah, every choice. The choice you make at your computer at night, the choice you make for how you talk to people, what you say in conversation, what movies you watch, what TV shows you watch, who your mentors are, who your friends are, every choice is, is leaving that shape within you, participating in your creation. Okay, there's the meaning, there's the essential. So God, from the beginning of your life, has intended you to participate with him in creating you. Okay, you have a mission, the call to holiness, Morality is that mission of self-creation after the image of God in union with him. All right. So what has God given you to do it? If that's your job, if that's all of our jobs, what has God given you to do that job? Well, of course, he's imprinted his image in you. Every part of you has been given to you for this. So look at the parts of you. This is... I swear to you, this will come to virtue, you'll, but you'll understand. Look at all that our Lord has given to you in order to share in this work of your creation. He's given you the things that are obvious, your freedom. Like we kind of, we know that we can make choices, your freedom. He's given you your reasoning, your intellect. You can think things through. You can plan. You can learn. You can read kind of what the church teaches. You can talk to people. Okay, your freedom your reason. Usually people stop there as if that's all you need for morality, right? You just need to learn the, what the church teaches and then do it. Then you think, okay, well, why did God give us everything else that he gave us then if we don't need it? Why did he give us desires? Why did he give us emotions? Why did he give us attractions? Why did he give us a body if they seem to be absolutely useless to the work of the moral life? This is the part we have done a horrible job of passing on. Every part of you is essential to this work of sharing in your ongoing creation. Every part, your emotions, your desires, your attractions, your body, your freedom, your reasoning. Now, in Adam and Eve, in the beginning, think of these parts. All of them are meant to kind of show you the image of God in your concrete life and direct you to it and draw you to it, attract you to it let you reason about it. And in Adam and Eve, all of that's working together, right? Adam and Eve have this beautiful alignment. Their freedom is aligned with their reasoning. They are attracted to the things 
that are truly good and they can see them, right? There's an alignment. Here's how I sometimes phrase it. As long as Adam and Eve listened to the voice of the one in whose image they were made, God, they had that alignment. As long as they, and imagine, does that make sense? Like God is the one in whose image they are made. If they are listening to him, they are aligned with him. Look at what happens the moment Adam and Eve listen to someone in whose image they are not made. The serpent, they are not made in his image and likeness. And yet they take his story. They listen to his plan for their life. And what happens? That harmony, that alignment comes apart. They're no longer, look, read, read Genesis chapter three, chapter four. Look at how it comes apart. They hide themselves. They can't see. John Paul opens that up beautifully in Theology of the Body, if you guys know. They cannot see God's plan in the body. Now they are attracted with lust and domination and they hide and they're afraid. Their emotions are out of whack. Do you see there's been, they've literally become disintegrated, disordered. And here's a point that I, again, I so, if I could leave you with just a few kind of things that I would so want to be impressed upon you, it would be that. You are disordered. You are disordered. There aren't just some people in the room who are disordered. You're disordered. If you're not, you don't need a savior. This is all a waste of time or just you making yourself feel better. Either you need a savior or you don't. And if you are not disordered, if you are not disintegrated, you don't need a savior. And if you are disordered, if you are disintegrated, why would we think that there is not a great work that needs to be done to realign ourselves with the good, the true, the beautiful? Why should we not understand that we come into this world fallen, our emotions our attractions, our desires, our reasoning, our choices do not by themselves reliably point us to the good. I don't know if I could say that more strongly. How many people that you have met believe that if they think something or they feel something, that it must be right? In what, and I, what I want to say to you, please, as Christians, please, you say this to yourself too, in what universe would a Christian say something like that? As if they literally had forgotten that we're fallen. We cannot forget. I sometimes say, if I had a t-shirt, please don't forget original sin. Like in our day and age, we just think that whatever I feel, whatever, this must be the way God intended it. No, it is not the way God intended it to the point where God decided to send the perfect image of God at a time called Christmas. He sends the perfect image of God to take flesh. So look at this. Your job is to shape yourself after the image of God. You're disordered. You're broken apart. So what does God do? He sends the perfect image of God. And what does that perfect image of God do? He literally incarnates. He takes on emotions, attractions, a body, reasoning, freedom, And then look what he does now in Holy Communion. He takes those emotions, those desires, those attractions, and he unites them to your body, to your emotions, your attractions, 
your thinking, your choosing. Do you see what's happening in Holy Communion? Do you recognize in the more, can you see the moral life even a little bit of a hint differently that the very one who has desires and attractions and virtues and is, is uniting himself to you? Okay, yes, that's a whole workshop. That's the meaning of Catholic morality. You're going to see, and I hope if you have a chance to read the handout, you'll, you'll be able to delve into that even a little deeper. And I don't know that you've ever heard that before. I certainly had never heard it before until I had five years to go halfway around the world and study. But I, I've decided that I, if I have no other mission in life, it will be to tell people what the meaning of their moral choices are. But anyway, what it does for us right now, this morning, that little bit of a big picture of what the meaning of morality is, is it helps us to see the moral life using an image that I, that I appreciate very much of navigation. Now I think we can understand the moral life as a navigation, and that will help us to understand where virtue plays a role. So think of this, navigation. We've got our destination our destination is that perfect resonance with the image of God. That's what we're aiming at. And when that resonance is full and complete, we call it heaven. So call it whatever you want, the call to holiness, call it heaven, call it resonance with the image of God, call it joy. We've got a, def we've got a destination. Okay, navigation. You got a destination, you need a map. How do you get to your destination? You need a map. All right, well, all of a sudden, just like that, we understand what the law is. The law, two choices, God's absolutely arbitrary, outdated, random things he gives you to prove your obedience, or the map to find your way to the image of God. One of those things is a little more appealing than the other because it's true that the law is the map. All right, what else do you need when you're navigating? You need your destination, you need a map, then usually you need a GPS, and God's given you that too. That's called your conscience. Your conscience is exactly like a GPS. It helps you to navigate, not randomly, not based on how you feel, based on the map. A GPS without a map is useless. It's a blue dot on a blank screen. Conscience without God's law is useless. It's a feeling amidst a million other feelings. So you've got your conscience. Okay, now we're coming to the point of being able to understand what virtues are. Now, so imagine with me especially in wintertime, even though we're not really experiencing a great deal of winter yet here in, in the city. But so imagine this, you know, your destination. Now picture you're in a car here for a moment, you know, your destination, you've got your map and your GPS is working fine. Your phone is kind of charged up. It's working. It's got a signal. So you think, okay, I'm good. I'm good. And now if you make the analogy to the moral life, you're like, I'm good. I'm good, right? I know my destination. I know the law. My conscience is well-formed. Now let's throw a bit of a snowstorm in there. Let's throw some fog. Let's throw a driving... In fact, this morning, there were snow squall warnings uh, for the city. They never ended up happening, but you know what that could be? Like, all of a sudden, this onset of, like, blowing snow. So look what's happening in the car. And I hope... I know some of you have had this experience, and it's not a, it's not a pleasant one to remember. So you've got your map. You know where you're going, you got your GPS, and you're driving off the road, and you're colliding with other cars. Do you see something is, like, you see that image of, of navigation helps me so much because you realize, wait, like, something's not right there, but I got the law, I got my conscience, I know where I'm going, God, image of God, something is still going wrong. If you can grasp that image, and now we can 
try to shift it into the realm of morality instead of driving a car, you have got something that is so critical to understanding ultimately virtuous sexuality, but also the entire moral life. The moral life is not as simple as just knowing the law. So living sexuality well and teaching it and helping other people to see it is not simply a matter of telling them what the church teaches. That would be like saying the only thing you need to get to your destination is a map and a GPS. And in a way it's true, but then I just throw one storm into that, one fog, one rainstorm, and you're done. Same thing with sexuality or any part of the moral life is that it's not enough just to know what the church teaches. Remember that all that the Lord has given us, our emotions, our attractions, our desires, our body, our, they're disintegrated. It's kind of like a storm, kind of like a fog. And you know this. I know this in my life. You know what it feels like to have your emotions hijack a moment. And it doesn't have to be in sexuality. It can be in some, some relational thing of passive aggression or insecurity or some fear, some, or it could be in sexuality, pornography, temptation. You know what it's like to have your emotions pop a whiteout snowstorm onto your reasoning. So what do we do about that? That's... That was the, that's the thing for me that is so important because I can learn theology of the body. I can try to teach it persuasively in a way that is beautiful. But if I don't understand how to make a storm go away in somebody's life so that they can actually see the road, so that they can actually recognize, desire, and choose the true good, then I feel like I'm missing something. It's not that we just need to know what the church teaches. Our very desires need to be remade, need to be realigned with the true good, not just our mind, not just our mind. I do not become virtuous just by reading, although that is essential. My point is it's not the only thing. The fog needs to be cleared. I need to be able to see the road. Okay. So moral knowledge, virtuous sexuality, virtue of any kind, knowing morality and living it and experiencing it as joyful and beautiful is never just a question of having information. It's not like mathematics. You know, you could be a perfect mathematician and an awful person. And if you're an awful person... It does not impede your ability to know that two plus two equals four. Morality is totally different. That if you are disrupted in your emotions, your attractions, your desires, you will have a very hard time recognizing. Do you see what I mean? Recognizing the good. That's why we have these experiences, both in others and in ourselves, where you tell someone, like, I worked, you know how hard I worked to develop this teaching against contraception, and now you look at me like I'm an idiot. Like... No, I worked so hard to make my argument perfect and they can't recognize it. Or in myself, I know the good. And there are some days I don't do it. You know that. St. Paul knew that. Fire away. 
Yeah, exactly. Or the effect. Thank you for that clarification. It's the effect of the disordered nature. So the fact that you could look at it this way, the map tells you to drive in this direction, but your emotions are pulling you over in this direction. And then as soon as your emotions pull you in that direction, your attention turns there and you start paying attention to this thing. You're like, yeah, you know what? That wouldn't be so bad. That's not... In because that's the way, this is what I mean, and we call this in technical moral theology, we call it moral anthropology, meaning if you, it'd be like literally, if you're a mechanic of a car and you don't understand how a car engine works and you're trying to fix it, in morality, if you don't understand moral anthropology, if you don't understand how the human person is made, you will never understand how to fix them. Now, that's a terrible way to phrase it. I'm just making that analogy to the car for a moment to make it clear. We're not trying to be fixed. We're trying to be made new. And that's not our job, ultimately. We're only sharing in it. But yes, so we, part of what virtue is, and eventually in large part, is trying to figure out how do we begin to reshape the desires of a person? How do we begin to reshape, to realign what we know with what we feel, with what we're attracted to? How do we begin that re realignment? And that is what the virtues do. That is their job. The virtues are the power that realign the person, that clear the fog, clear the storms, so that you can actually recognize desire and choose the good. So when we talk about virtue, we don't just mean the habit of following the rules. The person who follows the rules is virtuous. No, we mean the very power that is shaping our desires, our emotions, and realigning them with the true good in a way that allows us to recognize desire and choose the good and know the joy of resonating with the image of God. So I'll say a little bit more about this practically as we come to the end, but already we can see that to form virtues in others, to live virtuous sexuality will never just be a matter of reading something. But we'll say a little more about that that we're going to have to form our very desires, our very emotions. The things that attract us are going to form us. And this will be ultimately, to hint at it again, why everything in your life is going to be a part of living virtuous sexuality. Everything. Your friendships, your relationships, your parents, role models, mentors, the TV shows you watch, the YouTube videos you've got, the games you play, the conversations you have. Do you see, think about these things in your life. Like, we'll say a little more, but think about a television show you watch. You may never have thought about TV or videos as shaping your attractions and your emotions, but that is exactly what they do. You watch a TV show like Friends. Take one that crosses the generational divide, right? That's one that I can actually talk about because it also was a TV show in the 90s. So um, take a show like Friends. It's, all, it's totally fine to say, oh, no, it doesn't affect me. I know that it's not real life. That show pummels you with a vision of what joy is, and you willingly absorb it. Everything you allow into you shapes you, your desires, your attractions. Guys, I would not be speaking to you so insistently if I had not lived and experienced this and I'm desperately trying to make it something real in my own life. And it is real. We cannot, we cannot allow things into us 
that shape our desires according to a false image of the world and life, and then turn around and say, oh, it's so hard to live sexuality today. But you would never have made that connection if you didn't understand the role that desires and emotions play in orienting you to the true good. Everything is going to have an effect. Everything is going to shape and educate your desires. And this is an awesome thing because you realize, like, good heavens, like, our Lord has not made the moral life super complicated. Like, what do you allow into yourself? What kind of stories? What kind of experiences? What kind of conversations? It's not how smart are you. How smart are you? Can you read John Paul's Theology of the Body in the original Polish and it's text like... <laughs> Like, because if you can't, you're never going to live virtuous sexuality. No, it's what do you allow into you? Living virtuous sexuality will be far more about what you allow to shape your desires than it will be about your smartness and your ability to read a certain text. It will be both. It will be both. Because I, the, you, can, you can already see, for those of you, like the images, you can already see the pendulum swinging, right? It's like, okay, we've emphasized too much that it's just in the mind, and now he's about to start emphasizing that it's too much. No, you have to read also. Okay. As we educate those desires, though, it becomes ever more easy to recognize the good, right? Just like when you're driving a car, if someone were to lift the fog and you could see the road... So too, as our desires, our attractions, our emotions realign with the good, we start to see the road. We see, it's like, oh, yes. Like we see the meaning of sexuality more clearly. We desire it. We're driven toward it. Just like if the fog lifted in your car, you would start driving faster, right? Because you can see the road. So too, as our emotions, attractions, our thinking, all of it comes back into alignment, we start to drive faster, I want that. I want what I'm seeing. And now imagine the feedback loop you start to get. Now you desire it all the more, so you're going after it with even more drive. That's why our Lord gave you emotions. Emotions are the motor of life. They're the thing literally that drives you, which is why, because of original sin, because they are disordered, they are so harmful when they are disordered. And that's why so much of our attention needs to be placed on reforming desires. Okay, a, a teacher of mine in my own studies of moral theology uses the image of mountain climbing as another image, if you prefer, for this. Um, and he plays with it a bit, so just go with me. Imagine you're climbing a mountain. At the very bottom of the mountain, as you start, it's very hard. You're not used to it. You're out of shape, maybe. It's hard. You're climbing. It's all climbing. And guess what? There's no view. You're at the bottom of the mountain. People are telling you that there's some spectacular view at the top of the mountain, but you, you just see trees and rocks and so it's hard. Okay, now you keep going, but you persevere. You keep going. And eventually you come to one small little lookout halfway up the mountain. You're like, oh my gosh. And now, but at the same time, you're getting better in shape. You're getting better at climbing. You just had this beautiful view. Now you're motivated. You keep going. It's getting easier. And eventually you get to the top of the mountain and you see the view. This it is really in some ways a perfect image of what virtue is. And this brings me to another aspect of it that I want to share with you that I've kind of been alluding to because that image of mountain climbing helps us to notice something about virtue that for me has become one of the greatest motivators in my own efforts to live virtuous sexuality. 
look at this image of mountain climbing and notice something about it. So as you climb the mountain, over time, you keep doing it, it gets easier. It takes less effort. You're in better shape. But that's not all. What else happens? The view, joy, a view, a joy that you could not even have imagined when you were at the bottom of the mountain. It's both. It's both that it gets easier and it gets joyful. Virtues are also both. And virtuous sexuality is both. So virtue and sexuality doesn't, it, it does mean, but doesn't only mean, temptations will get less. It will be easier to be chaste. You will have less struggles. That is all true. But please do not reduce what you are fighting for only to making life easier in that way. Because just like mountain climbing, what happens with the virtue of chastity also is that as those things are happening, we also experience something new. There is a view, if you will, from this mountain of chastity that is beautiful, that you cannot even imagine when you are at the bottom of the mountain of chastity, a joy that simply cannot be known from the bottom of the mountain. As we realign with the image of God in our thinking, our choices, our desires, our attractions, our body, a new focus returns, kind of like putting on, as that alignment happens, we begin to see the beauty of the meaning of sexuality more clearly. We experience that beauty, a new mature joy that like the view from the top of a mountain is very hard to understand when you're at the bottom of the mountain. And it's the joy of resonating with the image of God. Now, listen, that is a very slow process. But as someone who is maybe, and of course, I have no idea uh, where you guys are at on that mountain. But if I could just phrase it this way, just to give you a, a, a make a point quickly. As someone who is maybe a little higher up the mountain just by virtue of whatever, I can tell you when you do, even though this is a slow process, just like getting in shape is slower, when you have your first experience of the whisper, even if it's just a whisper of the joy of chastity, a kind of joy that is so different from just the pleasures of some moment of whatever, I tell you it will begin to be a new source of power and motivation in your life. And then it will fade and you'll have to fight, but you're never falling back. You're going up the mountain. It may feel like you've fallen back a little bit, but you're not at the bottom again. You got to turn around and keep going. But our Lord will provide those moments. Anyway, this is something I'm taking from John, John Paul's Theology of the Body. This idea of the mature purity of heart and the joy that comes from it is one of the one topic that he unpacks in Theology of the Body that, honest to goodness, has become one of the single... There are two things from Theology of the Body that have become, apart from just knowing what it teaches, they have become central motivators in my own efforts to grow and heal and be redeemed and all of that. One of them is that, that virtue, that every effort I am making to grow in virtue, to shape my desires, my attractions, is not just about becoming a better person. It's about knowing a kind of joy 
that even with a little whisper of it, if the, the various whispers I've had in my life, I want it. I want that joy. That's number one. The second thing that I've taken from Theology of the Body, and this I will use to kind of come to a um, kind of the ending this part, is, well, let me set it up this way. It's the meaning of the body. It's something very central to the whole of Theology of the Body. So this is where the thing is, I don't know how familiar uh, you guys are with the theology of the body. But if you if you are, if you're not, uh, awesome, meaning you have such exciting stuff ahead of you. <laughs> uh, if you are familiar with it, then you will remember that one of the main ways that John Paul leads us into understanding God's plan for the of human love and sexuality and marriage is by going back to the beginning, right? Jesus himself is the one who points us there when he's talking about sexuality. When Jesus talks about sexuality, whether it's divorce, marriage, he says, in the beginning, it was not so. Okay, I'll, I'll leave those passages for you to, to find. So John Paul says, let's do that. Let's go back to the beginning and let us watch as God reveals the meaning of human sexuality to Adam and Eve. Let's pay attention. Jesus told us to t- pay attention. And if you remember what he does, John Paul identifies three experiences that Adam and Eve have that become the defining original experiences of God's revealing the meaning of sexuality. Original solitude, original unity, original nakedness, right? Adam is alone. He's naming the animals. Original unity. He sees Eve, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, this at last. And then original nakedness. And they were naked without shame. Those three experiences, and he beautifully unpacks how our Lord is revealing their identity to them through them. But here's my point. Central to each of those experiences when you, when you watch John Paul unpack them is that they are all happening. They're all being revealed through the body. That each one of these experiences is happening through Adam and Eve's body. So... What John Paul goes on to say is, look what is happening. God is communicating his joy, his, the image, the, you know, the resonance I talked about, the resonance with the image of God is entering into Adam and Eve's life through their body. That when Adam sees Eve, he experiences joy. When he sees the joy is God. God has entered into Adam's experience through the bodily encounter. This leads John Paul to say, and this is the big thing that has had a huge effect on me, that the body has a sacramental dimension to it. That it's not just a static symbol of the image of God. That what I do with this body will either image the love that is God or it will not. And if I use my body in a way that images who God is, it will unlock a channel of grace and joy into my life. And if I do that consistently, my very body is aligning myself with the image of God. Here's how John Paul phrases it. This is the only quote I'll give you from his actual text. But it's beautiful. He says, the human body, your body, The body and only the body is capable of making visible what is invisible, the spiritual and the divine. The body has been created by God in order to transfer into the visible reality of the world 
the mystery that has been hidden from eternity in God and to be a sign of it. The mystery of God's love, communion, and joy comes into the world visibly through the body. And so John Paul will say what you do with your body matters a great deal. If your body, not just so, we're shaping our desires, we're shaping our emotions, our attractions, you are also shaping your body. Imagine for one second if you believed that. Imagine how much easier it would be to understand the church's teaching in the area of sexuality. What you do with your body matters. It either images the kind of love that the Holy Trinity is, that Christ's love for the church is, or it doesn't. And if it does image it, it unleashes that very power. Okay, all right. Let us end by trying to understand how we can practically use the things that I've said, okay? And then, as I watch uh, my clock and I'm just thinking about the time, I might, uh, just again, depending on time, what the handout that I gave you with questions, give you a couple minutes to think about that and then see if we can pull together any more ideas about how to practically use this. All right. Virtuous sexuality not just understanding the meaning of sexuality, although it is that, okay? This is my big point that I've hoped to share with you, that rather to grow in virtuous sexuality requires us to pay attention to the things that shape us and to understand that our choices are shaping us and that the more we can seek to be shaped truthfully and choose truthfully, we will be growing in the very power that will allow us to experience a love that lasts. That's, my, that's the tact that I've taken here. So what could this look like in our life? So the first thing I'm going to say about this is we need to pay attention to our lives in a new way if what I'm saying is true. Pay attention to the environment, the practices, the routines the daily choices that you make in the way that you live your life and understand that this is shaping you and that everything you allow into you shapes you. So choose truthfully what you allow into you. I used the example of friends before. So look into your life. Look into your daily life, what it's going to look like in January when you're back home. What shows are you watching now, the next time you turn on Netflix or whatever, you think about the message the show is giving you. And instead of just realizing it's, oh, well, yeah, I better counter that message in my thoughts and it's not really true what they're, you now know, yeah, go ahead, go ahead and do that. But you're still absolutely being shaped by it because you've allowed it in. You've allowed it into you. So it shapes you. Just know, I know it's hard. I know but just say, like, one of the things you can be doing to grow in virtuous sexuality is making a decision about what you allow into these eyes. And then when you're having conversations with people, maybe you're tearing a strip off someone, maybe you're whatever, what you allow into these ears and out of this mouth is shaping you. Everything you allow to enter into you by your freedom is shaping you. So pay attention. This is my one first practical point. Pay attention to your life understanding now a little bit more of how the engine of the car works. So the movies, TV shows, what music do you listen to? What are the lyrics of that music? 
What jokes do you tell? What games are you playing? What are you reading on the internet? Who inspires you? Who are your role models? Who do you imitate? Who attracts you? All these things that are just kind of the stuff of everyday life. We don't even necessarily think about it. Think about them. Now, for those, I don't think any, some of you might have kids. I don't know. But now think about moral formation in kids. Just now I'm kind of sending you ahead to maybe some next steps in your vocation. Think about when you have children. What stories do you read to them? How do you look at them? What do they see when they're in your presence? What models do you give them to imitate? Do you see moral formation in children starts long before they reach the age of seven? Because now you understand that the moral formation begins long before age seven because long before age seven, you're shaping desires. You've given children a model. And, and of course, the greatest, the greatest person you want them to encounter is the good shepherd, is Christ, who absolutely will come to meet even the smallest child. Okay, so you see that. And then now beware of social media where we began. You are an incarnate image of God. And it is our nature to be in relationship with others in person, being with them, beware of a social media that is disincarnate, that does not require a body, that does not require being with people, that does not allow you to know them at a level that the incarnation allows, to know me standing here, not just my profile, me. Beware of this and then take to heart the data on social media and mental health. More social media use strongly correlates with poorer mental health and poorer social skills. Pay attention. Okay. Sacramental dimension of the body. How can we pay attention to this in our, in our daily life? So I'm going to say, give you two examples of how I use it and how I honestly counsel other people who ask me about it to use it. The sacramental dimension of the body. Remember what that means. It means that your body shares in the image of God, not only as a static kind of symbol of it, but makes it present. So when your body images, when your body reflects truthfully who God is and who we are to God, it unlocks channels of, of life, of grace. Okay. So two examples. One is a kind of negative one in temptation, and then another one is a positive one. So let's take an example of temptation. So you're you're, you're, working on, you're working on a school assignment on your computer, and all of a sudden, you get kind of that moment of temptation where an image pops into your mind, a memory. You know, you know this experience. You know where it leads. You know how it unfolds. You know how hard it is to stop. Okay? So here is just an example of how to draw on the sacramental dimension of the body. Not as a magic wand. It's not going to... None of what I say is a magic wand... Rather, it's one element of you using your freedom truthfully to invite God's life and, and healing. In. It's one element. There's lots of elements of facing pornography and masturbation, and there's lots. But here's one. So the moment that temptation starts right away, stop. Don't just fight it up here. No, right? I tell myself, I'm not going to do that, right? No, I'm focusing on this paper. This is who I want to be. You cannot just fight it up here. Why? Because... You're not just here. You're a body. So use your body 
Why, why do we not use our bodies to fight temptation? It's the very thing that's so often involved in temptation. So turn it on it. Like, seriously, stop what you're doing. Take your hands off the keyboard, stand up, walk over to an image of our Blessed Mother, which you have in your room. And if you don't, you do now. Uh, or the crucifix. Kneel down on your knees and with your mouth, praise God. I praise you, God. Watch what's happening. Look what you've just done. You have taken your body and with your freedom, you have put it into a posture of perfect truth. No matter what else is happening in your life at that moment, right there, you're doing the truth. You are on your knees before your creator praising him. Whatever else happens that night, you have shaped yourself by the truth. And because you used your body to do it, it also has unleashed channels of grace. And maybe it'll only be over time that you see the effects of that. But I guarantee you it is a tool you should be using. And I swear to you, remember the devil, the evil one, does not have a body. And I honestly believe, although he understands the weaknesses of the human body because he sees them and he's really intelligent, he doesn't understand the body. And I swear it is one of our greatest tools to fight the evil one, is the embodiedness of the human person. When you try to fight him in your brain alone, he's always smarter than you. He's an angel. Now, that doesn't mean he always outwits us. No, because we have the power of truth. I renounce that. I praise you, G like we can speak the truth at any time. Anyway, you see what I'm saying? That's one example in temptation. Another example kind of does, it's more positive, but it flows from it. Everything you allow into you shapes you, and the body is a part of that, unleashing channels of grace. So if you are sinning with your body, start loving with your body. Don't just try to defend yourself against temptations and it's like, oh, I gotta, okay, I gotta, you do have to do all that. You need a defensive strategy, but if a sports team only has a defensive strategy, it's gonna be a very boring game probably. Um, it might work, right? Get me right, it might work, meaning they're not gonna have any goals scored on them, but it will be a very boring game. And life itself, if it's only defensive, might work, but it will be absent of much joy in your life. So on the positive side, if you think of the sacramental dimension of the body, yeah, you got to defend yourself, but look, like, look up, look out, look at your life. Who do you interact with every day? From the shopper's drug mart to the classroom, to your family home, choose the way you will use your body with those people. Maybe, you know what? Think of your parents. Maybe it's like, oh, I don't want to go visit my parents. It's almost awkward. It's just boring. Now you're going to say, no, but Father Kevin says something about that. Okay, I'm going to walk into my parents' home. I'm going to smile at them. Now, maybe you have a great relationship with your parents already. I don't know, but let's say you didn't. I'm going to smile at them. I'm going to sit down on that couch, and I'm going to look at them, and I'm going to say to myself, no, I'm going to live this moment truthfully. I will smile. I will show interest in them. How are you doing? Tell me about that story again. I will, yeah. I would love to hear it again. <laughs> No, I'm not mimicking every word you're saying with my mouth. No. <laughs> uh, and not just our parents. I mean, I'm just pulling a random example, but sacrifice, like live truthfully. If you're not feeling like, if you feel like you want to go into a conversation and gossip about someone, don't do it. 
Choose truthfully how you will speak. And my point is that when we do this, that's not just a, you know, rah, rah, don't gossip. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, do you understand that when you make the choice not to do that, when you make the choice to interact with people differently, to sacrifice with your body, to serve people, because the body has a sacramental dimension, that truthful choice with your body is unlocking grace. And over time, that grace would grow. What is grace? It is the life of Jesus Christ in you. It is shaping you into union with the perfect image of God, Jesus Christ. That's, so that's what I mean. What I'm trying to say is there's some things you probably have thought of to do before, but see why it is that they're working and how they work, whether it's to shape desires or to use your body. And then finally, remember the mature joy. Remember that none of this is just about making temptations go away. None of this is just about kind of making sure you don't become another divorce statistic, right? This is about a joy that resonance with the image of God alone can give us. And it is a beautiful thing. So if there is something in there that can be helpful to you, I, I am very grateful. Perhaps, I think we have 10, 10 minutes left in this first workshop. So why don't we do this? Let me, well, let me actually first, let me just see if, yeah, let me just see if someone has any questions. I don't want to not allow you that chance. Yeah. So I just, it, maybe it's a very simple point that I want to make, but when you understand the moral life as a participation in our ongoing interior creation into the image of God, and you understand that everything that you have contributes to that, your thinking, your freedom, your desires, your emotions, everything, and that it's broken by original sin. My point is when you see that big picture of the moral life, all of a sudden the sacrament of Holy Communion, like it's as if it's like, oh my gosh, like, look what God has done. He knows that the purpose of our life is to be, uh, to resonate with the image of God using all of these parts of the person, and yet they're disordered, they're disintegrated. So look what he does. He literally sends the perfect image of God, his son, and he doesn't just become like a visible angel. He actually takes a body that has emotions and thinking and freedom and desires, and then he unites that he unites his emotions, his freedom, his reason. In Holy Communion, we are united with the incarnate Son of God, the perfect image of God. So what, I, what I'm trying to get across is, in, as, as I put all my puzzle pieces for living virtue on the table and, be, and a virtuous sexuality, I realize, oh my gosh, when I receive Holy Communion, like Jesus, unite your desires to mine. Like unite your reasoning to mine. Like make my body like your body. And it's happening. It's real. It's Holy Communion. It's the God of the universe. It's just, it's one of those things for me that's like, I can't believe you did this, God. Like, when did you get that idea? Like, it's, uh, but think about it when you're receiving Holy Communion is that if you're shaping desire, sacramental meaning of the body, virtue, like, it's all happening there. It's happening. God's uniting himself to you. And again, it's slow. It's slow, but you have confidence. Just like you kneeling down in front of that crucifix, you also receiving Holy Communion, you're confident it's shaping you. So be confident that the reception of Holy Communion is shaping you in a way that is allowing you to share in Christ's own virtues and emotions and desires. Ask him for it. And that doesn't absolve us from the natural things we need to do. 
We need to fight. We need to find our triggers, our danger zones. We need to make an effort to sacrifice. We need to do all that. But at the same time that we are trying, we are receiving the life of the God of the universe. And it's just a beautiful kind of big picture. So anything else uh, that maybe someone's like, wow, I thought you were going to talk about this and you didn't. <laughs> yes, Father. Yeah, what part of his life? Uh, now, I don't pretend to know St. Augustine so well as to be able to give a level of detail, but there are some aspects of, there are some aspects of his life, though. And this one, maybe, you know what? I won't pretend to do more than I can, but I will say the one thing that has most been on my mind with Augustine. And maybe it, it can complement, it can add to what I've said. Augustine had something that helped him enormously in this work, and she is buried next to the school that I went to in Rome. So how about this? So every time I went to class, I could just pop in to visit Augustine's mom. Uh, there she was, literally, there she is. Hi, St. Monica. <laughs> so what I honestly want to say, though, is one thing Augustine had to help him in his realignment. He had a mother who for 14, 15 years was storming heaven with a desire and that desire was not for her, it was for him. So in the mystery of human communion, you are not in the fight to realign your desires by yourself. You can pray for each other. And that has real effect. Because if you are united with the body of Christ in communion, and she is united with the body, well, there's only one body of Christ. So somehow what you desire has an effect on others. And it's a mystery how God does that. And it took a long time for St. Monica to see the fruits come into Augustine and all the circumstances of his life come into place in that garden in Ostia, which if ever you go to Rome, sometimes your airplane literally, you could literally go to the place where Augustine and Monica or Augustine's conversion would happen. Like the plane even flies over it, depending on your approach. Um, like it's real. So that's what I would say. Pray, pray for each other. Okay, just look at these just look at these questions. Maybe ultimately what I'll do is be leaving them with you, but let me maybe give you a bit of a guide through them. These can be questions for your reflection. So think number 1, think deep, think about the daily practices, routines and habits in your life right now. How might these be shaping your desires in ways you might not even realize? Think about them. Think about the shows you're watching. Think about the conversations you have, the friendships, what you watch on social media. That's number one. This one, number two, is really important to me, just for whatever reason. I don't know why, but number two, some people say that they're not affected by watching certain shows, that they can watch Game of Thrones or whatever show, whatever YouTube video, and not be tempted, or they can watch Friends just for fun, knowing that it's not real life. If everything you allow into yourself shapes you, though, shapes your desires, your ability to recognize and desire the true good, and thus no true joy. How true do you think is the claim that you're not affected by those shows? Question. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I love it. I love the, because the, it's, it's a good question, right? Um, okay, oh, man, I wish, oh, I wish I just could, take a thought that has no form of words and just drop it onto your brains. But <laughs> I can't do that. Um, because there's no, it's not an easy answer, but 
oh man, like I know the answer for me, right? So what, okay, I pray I can give you just some elements here. So the answer to your question is one going to be a personal discernment, meaning let me just take, let me just say me, okay? And all those elements, isolation, engaging the culture. Um, I know what shows I can watch and what I cannot watch. And I know it now in a deep way also from my formation in moral theology, everything I'm saying to you. I know, I like, so I'm not, like, I, I don't watch much TV. Like, I, and now you might think, no, oh, you're not very woke then. You don't really know what's going on. You don't really, like, um, but I, in myself, I come to, I, I can, this is the part I really want to get. I can say to myself, God, I know what happens when, I, with my life, my background, my choices, my, I know what happens when I watch those shows. There is no way my mission in this world is hampered because I cannot tell you the history of Friends from 1995 until 2008. Like, there's no way. There's no way, Lord, I cannot speak to someone in the culture your truth because I don't know what happened in the last episode of Game of Thrones. Do you know what I mean? Now, I'm not saying that I haven't benefited from folks who've written awesome comment pieces on this TV show or that and how witty and smart kind of, every, like I have benefited from it. It has helped me to understand the culture, but I receive it secondhand through commentators telling me, um, and that's good. And I'm happy. I don't, I don't, I like, I just, I'm happy not watching those shows. So I can't give you a great answer. Uh, what I'll say is take the pieces of the recipe. Everything you allow into you shelf shapes you. Know yourself, know your life, know the effect it has on you. Understand that your ability to engage the culture and speak truth into people does not depend on you being a brilliant cultural commentator. Take those pieces of the puzzle. I don't know how they'll fit together in your life. Um, maybe they will require you to watch certain shows and maybe that will be a huge way our Lord uses you in, like for example, as a priest in confession, you hear tons of things that I probably don't want to hear that you don't want to hear, but I know I'm doing our Lord's work. I know he wants me to hear that. So I say to our Lord, Lord, this is for you. You've just chosen to have it be said to me. And then I don't worry. And maybe there's an analogy there to other parts of people's lives. Like, Lord, yeah, he's a priest. He gets to live in a kind of certain world. I got to live with gossiping coworkers who talk about sexual jokes. And Lord, you know the effect that has, has on my mind. And then you say to him, Lord, this is where you've asked me to be. And if you've asked me to be here and it's your will that I'm working here and it's your will and I and you don't have to be don't have to be complicated about that. God's will is not a magic show you got to figure out, a shell game. It's where he's calling you to be now. And if you're there and you're doing it with sincerity and truthfulness, he'll protect you from the things that you need to be protected from. So that's kind of my goal at, at an answer. I did be clear. I'm not telling you whether you should or shouldn't watch. Uh, I think Game of Thrones, I would say no, don't watch it. But uh, <laughs> Friends, I'd be a little more conflicted about because it's a more subtle effect. Uh, yeah. Uh, yes. I, well, part, maybe what I'll say, I'm just appreciating too, the time. There is a mystery. When we say that, oh God, if only, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing, I'm not reflecting exactly back what you just said. When we say, oh God, if only you'd give me the grace, I could do all these things that would then make me resonate with your image. One of the possible things we're losing in that 
is that we have no idea how much more subtle and deep God's formative work in us is. Sometimes he allows us to fail. He allows us to feel the pain of some wound or some effort that we're constantly spinning our wheels at because it's almost like he's pouring out a foundation that only later on we'll be able to say, oh, that's why you didn't let me resonate with your image of God like that. Because you were doing something deeper and He's a master creator. He will use every failing you've ever had in your life. Every thought, every wish, every sin will all be woven together into something beautiful. So, okay, a short answer to that. He's doing something bigger. Go ahead. That's okay. But it's, so the, so the, the first question, though, is about losing people. Now, by that, I... I one, we could lose our friends or we could lose people we're ministering to. Did you have one of those two in mind? Is it the second? We're, losing, we're not able to relate to people in ministry? Somewhere in the middle. So I might not, uh, honestly, if I was in that interaction, I, I quite likely would not phrase it that way. Um, depending on how I knew the person and if they started talking about Game of Thrones... I would probably end up saying, and again, it's, this is, I'm making, it's very awkward to try to come up with like a specific example. Like, but what I probably say something like, yeah, man, you know what? Like over many years, I've just come to know myself and, you know, in my life, I've been able to find a really great place of just kind of tranquil, kind of settled peace. And, uh, man, like watching shows like that, like I hear it's awesome. I hear it's some of the best storytelling, uh, that's been around. And in some ways I kind of wish I could engage that story in that world, but dude, I know I just can't do it. So it wouldn't be a judgment like, oh, it's so bad. You can't watch sexuality because everything that let you in shapes you. Rather, it would be a witness. It would be a witness about what it, and I think that witness has, it does have a power, right? Because unless that gentleman or, or lady you're talking to does not desire peace in their life, um, there is a chance that your witness about peace will, will hit them. And it will certainly hit them faster than a, a judgment about Go ahead. Yeah, I want to give you a chance to finish. The... It's funny. I just look at my life and think, man, you don't got to worry about worrying about failing. Like, life will take care of that for you. Like, you just, meaning, I wish I, wish I could just give some attack. Okay, Kevin, you got to fail today. Like, no, I know that's not what you're saying, but... Um, I, listen, as I, as I had indicated to this question, there is not an easy black and white. I'm not telling you don't watch a certain TV show. All that I've offered to you is an understanding that maybe you didn't have before. And that understanding is perhaps easier to see with a show like Friends than Game of Thrones, because Game of Thrones is so obvious. But that any story that shapes, that attracts you, is shaping you. And... That is not without consequence. So maybe you and our Lord, and I mean this, I mean it. Maybe you and our Lord will come to an agreement where you say, Lord, you know that I'm experiencing great fruitfulness in my ministry because I am able to relate things that are happening in friends and turn them into stories that have helped people see you. And I tell you, if you and our Lord, like this is where it's a discernment. I know in my life, I can't do that. And I believe that in my life, it's not a limit. God has not said, if you don't watch Friends, you cannot be my disciple. I forget what he did say, unless you carry your cross or something. <laughs> I'm kidding. Go ahead. 
Yeah, let's not forget that this, as rightly said, that all of this is a slow and and a process that's ultimately being directed by one who sees a bigger uh, image. Okay. Um, yeah, nice. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Let's just praise God before we go. Glory be to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.